0: All right, could I piggyback off of what we just heard Kyle say? If you've not been to our One Life training, do it. I I I dare you. Several of us did that this past fall. Uh, We went through that experience together, and it'll push you forward in that area of your life. Please take advantage of that. There's two opportunities coming up in March, Uh, a Sunday morning option, a midweek option. You don't want to miss that. Please take advantage of that opportunity. I'm excited about launching this new series today. We're going to do a two-week series, and I named it about two months ago, named it Ish. I don't know what you think of when I say Ish. I'm guessing that we have different ways we approach that particular, I'm going to get a little nerdy with English today. It's a suffix, Ish. Some of you, you're thinking of, oh, where this comes from originally. Let's put that up on the screen. This, let's see, forming adjectives from nouns, having the qualities or characteristics of, for example, apish. Or how about this one, of a religious or an ethnic group? Swedish. You see the ish there. Yellowish. Six ish. In the 80s, I'm a child of the 80s. We messed with this just a little bit. Let me show you the next slide here. You see that this came about in the 1980s. It's kind of an informal way to approach this. Are you busy? Eh, ish. Are you hungry? Eh, ish. Thirsty ish. It's kind of a blah way to approach life, right? Ish. Can I rant just for a minute? Is this a safe space to tell you what I'm really thinking? I I bought this. I remember when I purchased this thermos. It was a big day in the life of a young man. I wanted my dad's Stanley thermos, you understand, but he's not going to part with it. It's valuable to him. It would have been cool to have my grandpas, but, you know, one of my other cousins, somebody else, walked away with that. This has one reason, one purpose, and one purpose only. You know what it is? To keep your coffee hot. That's what this exists for. It's for dudes, right? This is for you to take down into the mines or maybe onto the farm or maybe you could take it into a hunting blind, that kind of a scenario. It'll keep your coffee hot. And if you drop it off of a two-story building, well, it kind of bounces and it's got a dent and some neat patina, and then it still keeps your coffee hot. Apparently, I'm a 29-year-old soccer mom because when did this become this? (laughs) I'm not okay with this. 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 Y'all, this, this is mine. Stay out of my lane. This is a Stanley thermos, not a 29-year-old soccer mom's fashion statement. Can I vent just a little bit? I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. And since we're talking about English today, I grabbed this as a screenshot from a YouTube video. That's not a sentence, Right? That might be a sentence fragment, If maybe you'd put a period at the end of it, but it's not a question mark, right? Why everyone is obsessed with this cup? Cup? Question mark? No, that doesn't even work. All right, I'm done. No, I'm not done ranting. If you'll permit me, let me take it one step further. When did Champion become a quality brand? I'm not okay with this either, I found this on uh, Poshmark this past week, I don't really even know what that is, apparently you buy used clothing there. Somebody's mom bought this from Kmart under a blue light special in the 80s. She paid less than $5.99 for this sweatshirt and we wore it proudly. Why in the world does somebody think that they can ask $89 for that sweatshirt? I'm not okay with that. Things are shifting in their meaning, and sometimes it's hard to keep up. This is why. Oh, a month, month and a half ago, a couple of my staff came to me, younger staff, and said, hey, old man. They didn't say that. They, they were very kind in the way they approached me. Do you know what ish means in text speak? And I launched into my 1980s definition. Now. Now, it actually, it can also mean in text speak, it means what's the stuff that I used to shovel when I was a kid working on a hog farm. It can mean that, I guess, as well. I'm not okay with that. Words shifting their meaning like that. Speaking of the hog farm my first boss. I worked on this farm for seven years through high school and college. Actually, there was a period of time, we think maybe 18 years, where a Killibrew boy, there's three of us, worked on that same farm. Our boss passed away Oh, about a month ago. And so all three of us brothers loaded up and we drove over to Illinois and we actually got to drive out on the farm, saw a guy there that used to, he's managing the farm now and we used to work with him. That was kind of cool. He let us look around just a little bit and it brought back all these trips down memory lane. Speaking of ish, I worked with a guy, we'll call him Bob. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. It wasn't really his name. But we'll call him Bob. Bob and I used to work together, and we do these projects. And we would, whether it's like maybe mending a broken water line or working on some electrical thing or mixing feed in the mill or fixing a fence, we'd get about to the 80% mark of the work being done. And this is what Bob would say. Eh, it's good enough for who it's for. It's good enough for who it's for. Another way of saying yeah, ish. Yeah, it's good enough for who it's for. Since we're playing around with English stuff today, grammar and these kind of things, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to diagram Bob's sentence? Does anybody remember 7th grade, 8th grade, whenever we did that, diagramming sentences? Not my favorite thing to do, but I had fun this past week. And uh, one of our staff, Janet, and I played around with this. Turns out there's an app for that. You can download an app to diagram sentences now. And she plugged that in. It came back and said, you cannot diagram it. We played around with it just a little bit and kind of tweaked a couple things. If you were to diagram Bob's sentence fragment, this is where you'd land. It is the subject of the sentence. Is is implied. It's, there's the verb. It's good. No, not a good. It's good enough. That changes the meaning of the word good, right? Good enough for... Well, who it's for. I never knew exactly who he was poking at there. It might have been you. If you were a consumer in the, the mid-90s, uh, he might have been talking about you. When you go to the grocery store, the product that we were delivering to the grocery store, well, it's good enough for who it's for. Maybe he was talking about our boss that we were working for. Maybe he was saying, yeah, it's good enough for him, 80%-ish. Let's just stop there. Maybe he's talking about the hogs. I don't know. It's good enough for who it's for. The title of today's message is, Good is the Enemy. Some of you read a book about 10 or 15 years ago. You know the back end of that sentence. You probably know where I'm going in this message. Let me give you three challenges right here at the top of the message. We're going to unpack these as we go. This is the trajectory of this message. This is where we're going. Questions, statements like this. First, followers, don't settle for ish. We wrapped up a series last week. We're followers first. Remember we said leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is what God has called us to do. We are supposed to be choking on the dust of our rabbi, this teacher, Jesus is walking in front of us. We follow behind. First followers, that's us, we don't settle for ish. It's good enough for who it's for. The 80% mark, that's not good enough. For a first follower, what else? Here's a challenge. Ish is never good enough because we're going to unpack who it's for. Ish is never good enough. So the question that we're going to leave today with is this one. What of God's, what that belongs to him, are you ishing? What are you saying, ah, it's good enough for who it's for? Let's move on. We're going to diagram a sentence or two. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to study a passage or two. Our aim today is to unpack one word. It's the word excellence. There's a scriptural precedent for this. I love this passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It talks a little bit about what we're aiming at over the next couple of weeks. It goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Because of what he's done for us to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You know the problem with a living sacrifice. You know what that is? They, keep have, this, they have this propensity to want to climb down off the altar. He's saying everything you have, all you are, I want you walking around on the altar of your life. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is week one. This is what we're looking at today. Let's define excellence. Let's talk about what it looks like to live a lifestyle of worship, even in the context of our work, the meaningful work we bring before our God. Then let's read the rest of the verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Next week, we're actually going to push back just a little bit. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. My goodness, the world has a view of excellence, and we're going to unpack that a little bit, and we're going to push back a little bit. That's next week. Listen, churches rightly talk a lot about carrying out ministry with excellence. Why? Because God is excellent, and to pursue excellence in ministry is one way, Not the only way, but it's one way we can seek to live out his character. There are a couple of words in your Bible. Since we're getting a little bit nerdy today with English and diagramming sentences, there's two Greek words that we find in your New Testament that convey this idea of excellence. They can be translated excellent. Let me share with you these two words. Here's the first one. It might look familiar, it's the Greek word hyperbole. We have an English word, sound familiar? Hyperbole, it's transliterated, pulled straight out of the Greek. This would be defined as surpassing great, excellent, beyond measure. Actually, it has this word picture, this idea of throwing beyond. Rather than aiming here, I'm aiming beyond that, I'm throwing beyond that. That's the word hyperbole. There's another Greek word, though. It's the word arete. And this is a noun that's also translated excellence. And where hyperbole is used to describe something, arete denotes something worth striving for. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's go toward this thing. For example... In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes this, and he uses this word arete. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, this is what we're aiming for, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, arete is the word used there. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Arete, this idea of excellence, it starts with virtuous thinking, but it doesn't stop there. It moves from thinking to virtuous feeling and results then in virtuous action. We're not just thinking excellent, we're feeling excellent, we're doing excellence. And this yields something If we were to keep reading that text, in verse 9, Paul says this, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, I've been trying to model these things in my thinking, in my feeling, and in my action. We're aiming for excellence in all we do. He's writing this, by the way, from a Roman jail cell. He is spent. He's left it all on the field Practice these things, and then the peace of God will be with you. It's almost this picture of when you work hard, when you leave it all on the field, you feel peace. I've done what I can do. We'll leave it up to God to do the rest. Let's define this idea of excellence. Let's put some other words up on the screen here. Let's give it a real definition. Biblical excellence, let's call it this. Excellence is the delight that inhabits the heart and the mind of a first follower, somebody who's following hard after Jesus. We follow first, who is overwhelmed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Excellence then results in Jesus-fueled action for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Jesus answers that creatively with a story. Your neighbor is not just the person who's sitting next to you, your brother or sister in Christ but it might be the guy that like, Paul, like Kyle was talking about just a bit ago that lives next door to him, his one. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet, and they're looking at you, they're watching you, they're looking to see what do they, this person in my life who says they love Jesus, what do they value and how, to what excellence are they willing to live their life in every area as I'm watching them? This is a little bit confusing. Maybe, maybe we should diagram these sentences. Let's do that, shall we? Excellence. Excellence, here's the noun, is, what is it? Well, it's the delight. It's the delight that inhabits both the heart and the mind of who? A first follower. Who's doing what? Who's overwhelmed by the gospel of good news of Jesus. And then this results in something. This pulls something out of us. Well, let's see what it does. It says, excellence then results, let's hit the next one. It results what? In action. Not just busyness. Excellence isn't just doing more. Excellence is Jesus-fueled action. It's doing things because you're motivated by who Jesus is and what he's done in your life already. For a couple things. For God's glory, for God, and for the good of your neighbor, both your, your Christian neighbor and your person in your life who is not yet close to Christ. That's what we're aiming for. What does this yield? Well, we just read it. Philippians 4, verse 9, this yields the peace of Christ will be with you. Leave it all on the court and then rest and let God do what he's going to do with what you've done. So, for the rest of the time that we have together, I've got a passage that I want to unpack. We're going to actually diagram a couple of things out of this passage. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Would you turn there with me? Colossians 3, 23. There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you want to pull that out. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm on page 1,184 of that Bible. 1,184. Colossians 3, 23. I've jumped the gun just a little bit with this passage. We're getting ready to launch this series speaking of nerdy English things, nerdy wordplay, or even number play. We're going to do a series in March. It's called 323. Why are we doing it in March? Well, have you noticed? Do you know what a palindrome is? It reads the same way front and back. There's a date in March, 3-23-23. It reads the same direction if you go this way or if you go this way. That's a palindrome. I know that's kind of nerdy. But the whole month of March, we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 23, verses of Scripture. I couldn't wait for March on this one, though. So I jumped the gun. We're in Colossians 3 23 Let's read it together. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you're serving. Now, I would tie Colossians 3.23 back to Romans chapter 12. Remember this idea of walking around on the altar of your life, a living sacrifice. I would tie that uh, with the series that we just wrapped up, the idea of being a first follower. We're not called to lead first. We're called to lead second. We're called to follow first. Jesus is Lord. He's the boss of my life. Every piece of it. Or is he? Paul's actually writing here to a group of Christians who happen to be slaves. They're owned by another human being. And he's saying even in the context of that, the work that you do, you're doing it as if it's for the Lord. So do it with excellence. Don't cut corners. Ish is not good enough. It's good enough for who it's for. Stopping at the 80% mark. It's just not good enough, even if you're a slave. That's the context of this passage. So, I've got three diagram questions. We're going to diagram each of these three questions. We're going to unpack this verse together. Are you ready? Here's the first one. The first diagram question is, what is it it's the subject is is the verb what is it well if you look close enough it's right there in the verse literally in black and white colossians 3:23 let's look at it again whatever you do work at it what is it whatever you do Everything he's called you to do, that's what it is. What is your life's calling? If you're a student right now, it is doing class well. It is showing up to work on time. It is doing what you've said you will do. Whatever you do, work at it. Listen, I believe deeply in the priesthood of all believers. I believe that it, your work, it's marketplace ministry. God calls some of us to do what I do. God calls most of us to do things like, hey, you're an accountant. Whatever you do, work at it, as if you're working for the Lord. Maybe you work in the medical field. Whatever you do, work at it. Do this as if it's for God, marketplace ministry, priesthood of all believers. Here's a theological point. You might want to write this down. Work is not meant to be something that we dread. It's meant, rather, to be good and redemptive, even redeeming us, moving us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our work, take it a step further, can actually be a form of worship. Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Walk around on the altar of your life. This is an act of worship, how you work. You know, uh, everybody has a Monday morning, though, right? Every one of us has a moment. We come in on a Monday or a Tuesday and it's like, oh, What I have in front of me today. You know, my first five years of ministry, I had this um, ceramic pig. I don't know where I found it, but I saw it somewhere and I bought it and I put it on my desk and I kept it on my desk about for the first five years of ministry. Why? To remind me that no matter how bad it got serving Jesus in the church, I'd look at that pig and think, you know, I've done worse. It could be worse. There are things that I could be doing right now that I don't want to be doing. It could be worse. You know what? After about five years of ministry, I took that off of my desk. Why? I don't know if that's true. I started about five years in looking backwards with some longing toward the farm. It smelled horrible, and I did unthinkable things, but there were days... Yeah, I might rather be doing that right now because sometimes even the ministry that God has called me into work, well, it becomes work, and work is hard. I bet I could describe what you do very similarly. There are days when you show up and it's just like, I don't know if this is what I want to do today. There's work. But we were made for this. It's actually a part of the OG design. If you go back all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the creation account, how we were made, what we were made for, look at this, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, don't make this a gender thing, it's the man and the woman, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And at the end of the day, to look around and say, yeah, we've done something. We have We were made for this. We're designed for work. Contrary to some teachings, working is not a curse or a punishment. I mean, it becomes a part of our curse. If you keep reading this story, Genesis chapter 3, as a result of the fall, it can feel like that, a curse or a punishment. But the original concept of work was actually a very good thing. So how do we engage this reality? If work is supposed to be good, why do so many of us hate it? Here's three questions as we think about this idea. Three questions that may help us on our journey to learning to love our work. Number one, is it, is it something I dread or is it something I love? Some of you look at that and you're like, oh, I know, I dread it. Well, maybe there's a way to move past this into some joy. Because go back and look at our verse, whatever we do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that you are serving. When we work, Paul says, we're not merely working to earn a paycheck or trying to fill some meaningless quota. Rather, we're working for God himself. This isn't merely for pastors and missionaries across the world. It's true for bankers and lawyers and doctors and stockbrokers and construction workers, Starbucks baristas, people. Whatever you do, do it as if it's for the Lord. So, second question where's my joy in it? Where's my joy in what I do? Well, Maybe you need to seek some joy out. Maybe there's some self introspection, some work to do here. What does, in fact, bring me joy? Can I suggest just a couple of resources for you? There are several. Here's a couple that are great Strengths Finder by Tom Rath. Read that book. Great book. How about this book? Another one by Marcus Buckingham The Truth About You, Your Secret to Success. Just unpacking, learning a little bit about your God wiring. How are you made? Is my work something that I dread or something that I love? And is there some joy to be found in what I do? Let's talk about joy real quick, can we? Can I put up a joy chart? This is a great self-exploration tool. If you are a leader or a manager, you lead other people. If you have a team, this is a great exercise to do together as a team as well. Let's put this up. Two axes here. You've got this gives me life. The higher I am up on this Continuum, I feel more joy. It gives me life. It lights me up. This axis, this continuum, the further I come at this direction, the organization that I work for, well, I'm bringing value to them. They've paid me a paycheck to do what I do. So we're aiming for more joy, more job satisfaction and value given to the organization. So you can tell by this, we want to move this direction. Let's define these even a little bit more, shall we? Let's start down here in this quadrant. It does not bring me joy, and it does not give value to the organization. The question then is, why are you doing it? Now, that seems like an easy question to ask and an easy question to solve, but I bet there's some busy work that each of us are doing, and we've, just, we've always done it that way. I don't find any joy in it, and I don't think it's moving the organization forward. Maybe that's worth an honest conversation with your supervisor and saying, should we be doing this? Let's move on. Let's stop doing this. How can we set this aside? Push that one away. You come up here. It gives me life, but it does not bring value to the organization. Well, what do we call that? We call it a hobby. I, uh, I love to do woodworking. My paycheck here at Venture is not tied to my hobby of woodworking. Now, occasionally I'll do a little project and it will make its way into the church. I built an offering box at the first church I served years ago. And I put my heart and my soul into it. and I, It turned out looking like the Ark of the Covenant, like it was way overbuilt for what that needed to be. But it's still, I still find a little joy every once in a while. I gave it to the church. We used it for a capital campaign that we were working on. And every once I'll go, I'll go back and visit that church and they're still using it. That's pretty cool. Hobby made it into my work. Not usually how that's designed to be. Gives me joy. Doesn't bring value to the organization. That's a hobby. Do it on your own time. This is the two quadrants we want to wrestle with. You want about 50 to 90%, they say, of what you do to bring you joy, to find satisfaction in your career, or even in the place and the vehicle that you're working through. 50 to 90% more giving you joy than sucking the joy out of you. Let's talk about this area. Everybody in their job has something that they do that they don't like. If you are an early childhood major, if you teach preschool kids, every once in a while there's a poopy diaper, the organization needs you to do that. Then give you life it has to be done. When Don and I first got married and first started having kids, we made this deal. I thought it was a deal. Turns out it was a bad deal. I have a gag reflex for Puke. I know it's Sunday morning. You don't want to hear that. I hate the idea of that. So I said, listen, I'll do the nasty poopy diapers. You do the puke. We'll shake on it. About a week into that gig, I realized there's way more poopy diapers than there are is throw-up. <laughs> Don would also say I totally reneged on that deal. I did not follow through on that. But the principle here is this. Somebody has to do that stuff. Maybe you have a coworker that doesn't quite have the same gag reflex for that thing that you're doing. Maybe there's an opportunity to swap some stuff, to do some teamwork here, to move some things around in the organization where you're doing something that's giving you life that they didn't like to do anyway, and vice versa. Recognizing there's still stuff that just has to be done, and somebody's gotta do it. But if you can move things from this quadrant up into this quadrant, you're gonna see your joy go up, your job satisfaction increase. Pretty good team exercise. Number three, how do I change my outlook on work? How do I turn the corner in my brain? And this is something maybe you need to answer for yourself. Do you dread going to work? Well, maybe it's time for a change. Is there something that you're doing that's just sucking the life out of you? Well, maybe it's time to find that God-given wiring thing that he's called you to do. Or maybe the problem is inward. Maybe it's just a bad attitude, and you need to do some honest work before God and do some soul searching and move past that and seek joy because work can be a beautiful, engaging act of worship. Again, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's a way to devote our daily routines to God. Worship, here's the challenge. First, followers don't settle for ish. First followers don't settle for it's good enough for who it's for. Do the hard work. Here's the diagram question number two. Who is it for? Who is it if it is the work that God has called us to do? Who is it for? We've already answered this. Who is it for? Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it. We've talked about that. Work at it as working for the Lord. What you do, even if it's in a corporation, what you do is designed, work is designed to be done as if it is for God. Remember, we're talking about slaves, first followers. Paul is saying, slaves, serve your masters even as if you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading that verse, shall we? This is verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you, when they're trying to catch you being good or catch you being bad, or to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Work. Do it for God, regardless of who is signing your paycheck. And then he talks about, With all of your heart. Oh, my goodness. Can I just make this statement? Part of your life's calling goes beyond the paycheck that you receive to sustain your livelihood. Part of your life's calling, if you are a first follower of Jesus, part of your life's calling calling is then to serve the family of God. If you don't have a meaningful space of service here at Venture Christian Church, you're missing out. And I would challenge you, I would invite you to roll up your sleeves, get involved. We would love to get you connected in a meaningful opportunity of service. We're going to actually devote a series to that later in the calendar year. And I can't wait for that, but I want to prime the pump right now. Oh, my goodness. If you're not serving, you're missing out on an opportunity. A way for him to grow you. A way for him to use you and for you then for your worship to be a lifestyle of worship. We gather together on a Sunday morning. Some of us right now are down the hall worshiping by serving kids. Some of us are worshiping by working on the coffee that you've been sipping on. There's multiple ways when we gather on a Sunday morning we worship. Because of who it's for, here's the challenge. Ish is never good enough. Ish, eh, it's good enough for who it's for. Uh-uh. Because who is it for? Jesus. Here's the third diagram question. How do you do it? How do you do excellence? Well, let's look. It's right there in black and white in the verse. Let's look at it a little bit another time. Whatever you do, work at it. We talked about that. As working for the Lord, how do you work at it? With all your heart, can you honestly say when you show up tomorrow for work, when you show up here to roll your sleeves up and serve at the church, when you show up to be a producer, not a consumer, when you show up to work, are you doing it with all your heart? Are you leaving it all on the field, so to speak? It's good enough for who it's for. Listen, whatever it is, it's never good enough. Because we're doing this for Jesus. So we should do it with excellence. There's always room for improvement. You know what an encouragement sandwich is? Gotta encourage you with some stuff. That's the top bun. Encourage you with some other stuff. That's the bottom bun. But in the meat in the middle, there's something that we need to work on. Can I challenge you with this? There's a space we see in Scripture where the Apostle Paul does this to the church in Corinth. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Here's the sandwich. Since you excel in everything, this is a bit of hyperbole. They don't excel in everything, but he's saying, let me list some things that you do really well. You, there is some excellence to be found in your lifestyle. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, here's the bun, right? And in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel. Let's move past that into something that you really need to work on, excel in this grace of giving. He's looking at the Corinthians saying, you're doing great in some areas, there's some excellence there, but you're still just a little bit stingy. Can we work on that together? There's excellence to push at in every space of your life. What are you missing excellence in today? There's a, a quote I told you about a book a bit ago. You couldn't swing a dead cat about 10 or 15 years ago. I'd go to a leadership conference and you couldn't swing a dead cat and not hit a good to great book, a Jim Collins book. Here's the quote. This is the premise of his book. Good is the enemy of great. Great. And that's one of the key reasons why we have so little that actually does become great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life, for ish, for it's good enough for who it's for. Might we take that one step forward and just say this, maybe, maybe we don't have great churches because we settle for good churches. I want to hit you with real quick six statements about ish. As you seek to lean into this opportunity this next next week to take it from ish to something else, to take it from it's good enough for who it's for to excellence in your lifestyle of work before God. Number one, we do this for God, not for us. We work, this is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're walking around on the on the life on an altar of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Number two, nothing defaults into excellence. We don't get there by accident. You default into a routine, maybe, you default into maintenance. But when you do that, you're no longer seeking a need for improvement. Nothing defaults into excellence. Number three, reliance on just our own power isn't excellence. Has anybody been tracking the news out of Kentucky? Have you been seeing this revival that's happening down there at Asbury Seminary and across the street at the college? God is showing up. I've heard uh, eyewitnesses that have gone and seen. They they just feel the presence of God there. Listen, you don't manufacture excellence. You lean into what God is already doing, and you join him there. Reliance on just our own power, that's that's not excellence. Number four, mediocrity is a poor witness. When somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet looks at you and sees that, ah, we're just going to stay at 80%, it's good enough for who it's for, that looks like laziness. That doesn't look like excellence. Number five, accepting less than excellence can be a spiritual cop out. Do you remember the old song, Give of my best to the master? Give him the first place in your heart, give him first place in your service. Consecrate every part. And number six, a commitment to excellence challenges us to improve, to get better. There's room to grow in this area. You know, our church has been leaning into that. Some of the leaders of our church have been doing that in the last year and a half or so. We've been working with a group called Intentional Churches. And a group of us went, actually joined them for a week away to lean on some of the systems of our church and to do church better. Why? Because we want to be more excellent. Because we want to see God's kingdom move forward in powerful ways. As you're focusing your prayers this week, maybe you pray for some of the church leadership and the strategies that we're leaning into around here. Maybe this week as well, God would call you to lean into your own life. How are you living excellently before God is there room for improvement have you settled for ish when he wants so much more for you so here's the challenge question we're going to end on this one what of god's what actually that belongs to him are you ishing What in your life, Romans chapter 12, walking around on the altar of your life, are you leaving at it's good enough for who it's for? And you're missing out on excellent worship through a lifestyle of worship. I can't answer that for you. God can help you with that. We're going to lean into a moment now in the service when we take a deep breath and we do some introspection. We think about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, And how he moves us forward. Can I just challenge you as we do this to think about this next week? What do you have in front of you? How do you lean into more of it's not good enough for who it's for? There's always room to make some improvements. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the truth that you've made us for work. We thank you for reminding us of the truth that uh, it's not good enough. Ish is not the place we land. So, Lord, as we lean into this week, use us for more. Entrust us with more as we serve you better. And it's in your name in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.